Hello, everybody. Welcome to Winning at Work. Hope you're having a great day. I know all of us are just working so hard to keep our heads above water, keep a good mental attitude, a good mental altitude. And I hope this podcast is fitting into your educational and entertainment schedule. I know I'm having a ton of fun doing them. I know my guests are really enjoying it. And the feedback I'm getting has been amazing. So many great companies and brands and purposes and missions out there that we're all getting to hear and learn more about. It, it's in really creating this, um, this awareness, you know, bringing things to light that we knew were out there. We knew we needed to change or we know it's coming and we need to learn more about it. And I think that's really the, the probably the best segue to talk about today's episode surrounding AI. We all know AI is coming, but how much do you really know? I mean, do you really understand how AI is going to work? Do you really understand how it's going to impact your business? I know when I ran my own business, I looked into it. I had several meetings with an AI development company. It's extremely expensive even just to build a, a prototype just to get your data feeds into it. And Ultimately, I decided not to do it because I think the really, really big companies would have crushed me. It could have bankrupted my my company, so I ended up not doing it. But in any event, it is awesome. And AI is going to totally disrupt how so much of business is done today. And Jason Volano, he is a part of the executive management team, the executive leadership team at Trendence. He's actually the global head of strategy, specifically in the CPG group. And he comes out of Coca-Cola. He was a sales exec there. And I, I thought he'd be the perfect person. He understands food. He understands beverage, understands CPG. And now he's into AI and delivering AI solutions to the larger, really Fortune 500, the big boys within CPG. So we can kind of get a look and see what the big CPG companies are trying to do and then we can figure out, okay, so the rest of us, you know, the small or mid-size growing companies, you know, how can we start to incorporate and use some of this new AI technology in our businesses or and how can we prepare and get ready for it and what to expect? And that's exactly what we're going to get into today with Jason in this episode. It's fantastic. It's, it's really eye-opening. I hope you guys enjoy listening to Jason's backstory. He's incredibly vulnerable, very, really kind of, I won't say caught me off guard or caught me by surprise, but I was just, well, I really actually, he did catch me off, off guard a little bit because not many people will open up the way he did. So a lot of respect for him and what he's gone through. And stick around to the end because he's got a unique perspective on hiring and how to uh, evaluate talent. It kind of ties back into that comment. I want you to see how the whole thing kind of ties together. I think it's uh, it's great. So anyway, this is episode 84. We also are on iTunes, we're on Spotify. I'd love for you guys to subscribe. That way you get notified when every new episode comes out. Definitely share this in your LinkedIn network. Tag people, tag groups. I really want this message to be spread. I want the influence to grow above and beyond what's in my network, what's in his network and Trendence's network because they'll, they'll share this with their listeners and their followers. I think you guys are in store for an eye-opening look into the world of AI. and hope you guys enjoy this great episode with Jason. Well, welcome to Winning at Work today, Jason Villano. Very, uh, very happy to have you on, sir. Thanks for having me, Tony. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to give people a little bit of your background before we jump into your current role, which is Global Head of Strategy, CPG at Trendence. They need People need to understand that you're coming out of a world of food and beverage, um, which I do find interesting, too, that you graduated from Georgia Tech and then went to uh, Bolt House Farms, where regional sales manager there, and then sales manager for the East for Sambazon, and then the majority of your career at Coca-Cola, where you finished 
your last two roles as a vice president, vice president of DSD sales for Kroger, and then VP sales at Target. And now you are global head of strategy, CPG at Trendant. So tell us a little bit about Trendance. What uh, It's AI, but, but tell us specifically a little bit more. Yeah, so uh, actually, I'll I'll kick back to at least my progression because you you know you were talking about just the progression of the career and food and beverage and how that all worked. I'll at least give you kind of a background there. Um, going to Georgia Tech, I aspired to be an architect. It was one of the things that I dreamed of. You know, growing up messing with Legos, I thought I could build anything. And um, you know, I wound up applying to Georgia Tech and getting in, and it was a no brainer to go accept. But then beyond that, you know, Georgia Tech sits right next to Coca-Cola. And every day you walk on that campus, you get to look up and you can see that building just staring at you. And it was always an aspiration to go work there. Um, But uh, due to probably having uh, too much of a social life in college, I didn't quite have the grades to uh, even get an interview at at, uh, (laughs) Coca-Cola. Wait a minute now. You're probably not giving yourself enough credit. You did make it to Georgia Tech and you did graduate in four years. So... I I, Uh, I did. I did. It wasn't as easy as I would have loved it to have been. So I I will honestly say that, you know, I'm one of those cases that you can be knocked down and get back up. So uh, I'm pretty open about this with my folks. But, you know, when I went to Georgia Tech, I had too much fun when I first got there. I took a different approach where I worked really hard through high school in order to get the great grades. I went to Georgia Tech and I messed around a little bit. I actually wound up failing out in my first year. I ended uh, my freshman year with like a .8 GPA, and um, you know, Tech yeah. is a but Tech is a very hard school. And I, I should tell you, Jason, that my grandfather, I'm an Atlanta native. I'm a fourth a fourth generation Atlanta native. My grandfather went to Tech High. It don't, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And and then he uh, went to Georgia Tech. I want to say he graduated in like 1922. That's impressive. It's very impressive. Very challenging. Um, I heard all the stories of the golden tornadoes. So uh, I definitely betrayed him when I went to Georgia. But that's another story. So you played around your first year, but you still made it. Yeah, I wound up actually uh, got the call from mom told me to get my butt home. So I drove all the way back down to South Florida. Uh, and then I went to uh, Florida Atlantic University for a year as a non-degree seeking student. I uh, wound up getting a 4.0 there, came back. You know, I still had applied, didn't get back into Georgia Tech. Um, I went to Georgia Perimeter College in Atlanta and got a 4.0 there and then was actually accepted back in. And so I was able to maintain still graduating in four years because I still went to school and applied credits outside of it. Um, and then, you know, then I was, I learned a lot more about myself. I learned how I learned um, that I needed to be in class. I needed to listen to the lecture. And by doing that, I can retain more knowledge and actually do really well on the test. And uh, I wound up getting Dean's List the remainder of it. Um, thank you for telling that story. On a, but before you go on, I just want to thank yeah. you for telling that story because I think it takes a lot of guts to just say what you did because, you know, people are putting out maybe their best self, you know, on LinkedIn. And I don't know. I, I just got give you kudos. You know, um, you learned something about yourself, but you didn't have to share that. And I, I hope that. That, that shows people, you know, you really don't have to go in the traditional path. There's lots of different ways to success. There's lots of different ways to winning at work. So uh, honestly, thank you for that kind of unexpected little tidbit. No, no, it's, it's fine. And the reason why I share it is the, the single greatest learning it gave me was it taught me how to still continue to be successful in the, in the, in the, within a failure environment. And it was probably one of the most challenging call it years of my life where, you know, for years I had built up, I was going to go to college. I was going to be successful. I was got into this great school and then for all to fall flat and actually really impact those that, you know, help support me all the way through my life to get me there. Cause I didn't grow up 
you know, wealthy. I grew up really poor. And so to get there, you know, was another thing. And so, you know, to feel that level of failure, but then it's all about how you get back up and how you persevere. And that taught me a lot for, as I started to go into a career and, you know, not to allow myself to get overwhelmed when I made mistakes, not to get overwhelmed when I didn't make the right decision. And over time that really helped accelerate things for my myself in the future, which is, you know, I, I look back at that as one of the worst moments of my life, but one of the best teaching moments of my life. And so I've shared it with my kids. I've shared it with my colleagues, you know, and it's a thing that I'm not embarrassed of because, you know, it stunk, but you know, there's always things that you can learn from, from the past to help you be much better and more successful in the future. So that's why. Well, and that really is going to open up your your heart to help your kids as they get older and start making those decisions. For those that don't know, Jason has four kids, and we were just kind of joking before we started the podcast that uh, you know life life as a as a parent with four kids in travel sports, you just you know the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. So, uh, thank you for carving out time to get into this story because, um, I do find it quite interesting. So, um, <laughs> I, it's, it's, it's very, it is instructive. It is very, it is very instructive. So I appreciate that. So you did make it, but so you did make it to Coke, but then beyond, and I, I, I don't want to get ahead. So, but, but let, let's jump into Trendance. So, so tell me, tell us a little bit about Trendance because I want to go back and understand why you would leave Coke. Um, you know, what, what the opportunity was for you, why that was so intriguing to get into AI. So give us the overview of, of Trendance. So Trendance is really, I mean, it's a fast paced AI consulting group that's really focused on being solution oriented, constantly curious and focused on last mile execution. And one of the things for me that was really big about this decision I played into it was my track at Coca-Cola had always been mostly within sales, right? Uh, I did have about a two-year stint where I led category analytics on the Kroger team. But beyond that, I'd always been in sales. And I was looking at the way that business was being conducted now and how I expect it to be conducted in the future. And for me, it was how do I get where the puck is going and how do I gain that experience and do it within a company that would allow me to come in with raw CPG knowledge, provide value, um, but not maybe have the full understanding of how AI, AI works. And Tradence was, you know, approached me and we got to talking and it really, they created a safe environment that enabled me to come in, learn the AI business. I know a lot more now than I did five, six months ago. Um, but also helped me to leverage my strengths as, you know, within CPG, within retail to be able to help them grow their business. And that's been the most exciting part of it for me. And now look, you know, five years down the road, does that start to open up more do doors for me than just sales did? And that's really what my expectation would be is that, you know, down the road, I've really helped enhance my career um, and took more ownership of my career. And so that, that really was the motivating factors behind it. Well, explain the solution that is being provided through AI. I, obviously, there's just enormous amounts of data, right, that Tredens is, you know, sussing out and, and enabling better last mile decisions. But practically speaking, you know, what problems are, are you really solving and, and how is AI involved? I think a lot of people hear AI and it, it's kind of gray. It's a little fuzzy. We really just honestly don't understand what it looks like. Yeah. Well, I, I'll put it this way. It's what you've always imagined in business of what the capability can be, but you never had it before. And so it goes in different factors, but let's just, let's start with like the most basic foundation. You hear today people talking about data lakes, and that is like the root or the core of anything that has to be done in order to access data. And so we start even from that side of the equation with data engineering, 
and help organize data lakes, create ingestion from getting from the data feeds and bringing it into the cloud environment. We help with an architecture standpoint of, hey, do you need SAP and do you need Azure or do you want a multi-cloud environment? Um, and then we also help with harmonization, you know, which is starting to get the data to actually connect and match, including when you have different data sources that come in. Um, so it starts there, and then it even expands into how do I more effectively run my supply chain? How do I create RGM analytics that um, are predictive in nature? How do I solve my out-of-stock problems? So as those core business questions start to really resonate, AI can come in and help and cut through you know, massive amounts of data and help identify really succinct solutions within seconds. And then, you know, eventually you get to the point where you get to a networked organization where you're these now, these platforms that you've propped up can actually talk to each other. And so if you make a decision in marketing that flows to the forecast, that flows to supply chain, that flows to production, then all delivered to a store or to an e-commerce platform that, you know, one decision can change everything. And that's the beauty of what AI can do in the future. Well, you said harmonization. And when I think of all the silos that exist in business, you know, the ERP itself is a, a massive sinkhole of data. And then you've yeah. got all your CPG data. And then you mentioned marketing. Then you have your well, supply chain would be wrapped up in ERP. So is that the first step is linking, finding a way to get all the data flowing across all the systems up in your kind of AI cloud? Is that is that how you say it, like an AI cloud? <laughs> Yeah, I'm learning as much as uh, as I'm educating at this point. But exactly. Yeah, well, that, you know, that is I, how you say it. Okay. Yeah. It, it basically, yeah, you're connecting, you're creating pipelines of data that extend from the data sources into a cloud environment that make the data accessible within a particular cloud. And then what you do is there's ways to export that data into Power BI dashboards, into Tableau, whatever it may be, in order to have interface. You can then tweak it over time and write ML algorithms underneath it in order to get data to be more prescriptive in nature. So that not only are you now looking at the insights, but you're also generating action to take forward within your business. And, you know, the, the goal is, is that over time you're, you're able to increase productivity within, you know, your day-to-day -day life. And so, you know, stuff that I remember from my Coke days that would have taken eight to 12 weeks of many cross-functional teams working together to identify the right plan and the course of action and sift through all the data to get there can now be done in the course of minutes. And then you're now focused on how do I go effectively sell this? AI is expensive, at least when I looked at adding it into my recruiting business. I owned my own business for 10 years, and I could see this coming, and I wanted to find a way to connect all the dots because I was, you know, myself, my team were exposed to so much data, and I was really trying to be more predictive. I had all these kind of ideas around it, but for a small business, it was very expensive to even build a prototype and it would always need tweaking. So I ended up not going that route. I think it was smart because I, I probably would have bankrupted myself trying to do it. <laughs> so that leads me to believe that you're, you must be dealing with larger companies, larger revenue companies. What is the general kind of revenue size target size that, that you're working within this CPG space? Yeah, we're, we're typically dealing with fortune 500s. And so, and in a lot of cases, Fortune 100 companies, um, but that isn't, you know, exactly where we stop. I mean, we, is, I'd probably say if there are a billion dollars or more in revenue, uh, we're most likely engaging at some level uh, within their organization. And, you know, for us, there's not one that's too small. It's just more about the capability that what needs to get done. 
And, you know, the way that we always come in and we work in the environments is we normally start on a small project, prove our value, show thought leadership, which really helps differentiate us in the marketplace. And then from there, expand um, and enable once once we show what we're capable of, a lot of our partners want to continue to expand their business with us. And that's what's really given us a nice competitive advantage in the marketplace. So how do you envision this AI cloud supporting decisions in the food and beverage world? What's the, what's the tie-in? Because that's, that's your background. That's where you came from. And as you said, you wanted to kind of follow the puck. I love that expression. So what can we in the food and beverage industry expect to see in the future through this type of advanced technology? Yeah. So there's, there's really a couple parts to it. Um, one of which is the, one of the, the biggest trends that I see out there is RGM. Um, RGM has, has really been the pathway for many CPGs in order to uh, further drive premiumization in the marketplace. And in order to identify where pricing can be had against what brands and also fully understanding the DNA of your business and what we call DNA is more like your distribution and assortment of your business and identifying all those pillars really is a big opportunity in the marketplace. Um, a lot of times today uh, you have companies that are taking price on brands that potentially they don't need to be uh, frontline pricing maybe isn't the best way to go. And maybe it's more of a mix opportunity or um, leveraging innovation more effectively. And then you have in other areas where promotional pricing can obviously be adjusted because you're running more inefficient promotions. And how do you start to actually improve your TPO optimization or trade trade promotion optimization in order to really make an impact on your business and maybe save some money without actually taking frontline increases out there? And then the last piece of it, too, is within, within that RGM landscape is OSA, which is on-shelf availability. And that's the core of the business, if you start to really think about it. Because if you don't have a product there to sell, it doesn't matter what you do within pricing and everything else, you're never going to be able to achieve those metrics that you want. So, you know, we've seen a large movement within OSA, but where we've really tried to differentiate ourselves is being much more prescriptive in how OSA works. So not telling you what's happened in the past, but telling you how you navigate the future based upon what your forecast and the sales are all supposed to go do and what your, your OSA is going to potentially be based upon what has been ordered, what's currently in the warehouse pipeline, and then what your forecast looks like for the next four to eight weeks to base, best fulfill that demand that's actually needed. And so it's, it's one of the pains I always struggled with at Coke, and it's one of the things that, you know, if we can bring forward, you know, that's uh, definitely going to be something that can help impact CPG. Beyond that, the other areas I'm also seeing is e-commerce. E-commerce is obviously any probably podcast you listen to, folks are going to talk about e-commerce and how it's changing. And it has made a dramatic impact into the way that we go about our business today and how we go purchase products um, within grocery at this point in time, it's getting much bigger. Uh, we saw a huge surge during 2020. Uh, we've seen it come back down, I think, more to more reality levels, um, but still a significant increase of where it was pre-COVID. Um, but with that, you're looking at CPGs really trying to figure out how do I best get my product in people's hands with how they want to receive it, whether or not that is go to the store, click and collect, deliver to home, um, whatever it may be that they can have it in their way. And so there's, you know, and where we are in the United States, there's a good infrastructure for that. Globally, it's not as much. So there's ways that AI is able to really come in and play and identify how you can effectively put yourself in the right position in the right market to deliver to your consumer within 30 minutes or less by making the choiceful decisions on how product, how your product should actually be linked with partners in the marketplace. 
And then, you know, the other areas would be innovation. Um, you cannot continue to sustain a business without innovating constantly. And AI can help identify white spaces within the marketplace, identify emerging trends, and really quickly see that things that maybe a lot of CPGs would have seen as maybe pricing premiumization or category just accelerating, but not realizing that it's because of these certain attributes that exist that's actually driving that behavior. So those are a couple of the ways that, you know, I think we see the trends really impacting food and beverage in the future. AI, when it comes into a market, it, it disrupts it. As you said, back at Coke, you know, what might have taken you, you know, weeks to come up with some analysis that can be done in minutes. So that really frees up the time, the, the, the mental capacities to focus on execution or other issues. How is, so how is AI going to disrupt CPG in, in your opinion? What can we, um, what can we expect or, or what can we brace for? And maybe how can some of these smaller brands start kind of building toward that or kind of leveraging what maybe some of these large companies can afford to do? Yeah, the way, the way we're looking at it right now is many CPGs are on this track where they're saying they want to go become a digital operating model. And you'll probably hear this if you watch enough of the analyst reports and things like that. What we are seeing is that there's phases within that. So there's a crawl, walk, run, and then eventually get to fly. When you're in that crawl, walk, run, Basically, a traditional operating model and a digital operating model aren't much different. The biggest difference is you're like digitizing the traditional operating model. You know, instead of being strictly on hardware, you're moving to a cloud environment. Instead of being a silos organization and functions where you send emails all the time, you've put stacks in place in order to create more AI within marketing, RGM, supply chain, etc. Right. But when you get in the, towards the end of a run and moving into fly, there's this inflection point that starts to hit. And at that inflection point is really where the digital operating model starts to accelerate. And the reason why it accelerates is because the companies that are willing to go figure out how to completely network that organization and create a decision engine out of the AI infrastructure that they built it will wind up actually creating decision processes for them that will speed up and create operational efficiencies within the business that will accelerate their time to market in terms of innovation, accelerate the time, the time it takes to go determine things like price, promotion, how to go plan effectively, um, even how the supply chain operates. And when they do that, they'll be able to completely leave competition in the dust. And that's the biggest thing. And then the funny part's going to be is when we probably get to that point in time, what we would consider that fly and that decision engine and everything else, that's all of a sudden going to become crawl again. Because then it's that next evolution of where AI starts to go. But right now what we're on the track for is that inflection point and those that accelerate beyond it versus those that just keep it digitized uh, traditional operating model. I know this is uh, probably hard to answer, so I don't expect this to be you know black and white. But depending on the size of the company and the complexity, how what's the timeline that it takes for someone to go from the crawl walk to get into that run area where they start to see this decision engine forming? What's the what should a, a company expect? Uh, it depends. So I, I know it does. Yeah. And that's why yeah. I thought, you know, but that's probably what people are thinking. Yeah. And I, here's what I would say is that it depends on how many data sources that you have coming in, how clean the data actually is. Uh, the one thing about tradings that has really helped differentiate us is, uh, through all the learning that we have and the experience that we've had, uh, we've created accelerators within the process. So, Things like when you're doing cloud migration, we have an accelerator that actually aids in ingestion of the data. We have an accelerator that aids in the harmonization of the data. 
which really helps speed up the process and actually reduce the time value equation by about 40 to 50% by just doing that. So things where others may come in and tell you it's going to take years to go get done, we may be able to come in and tell you it's going to take less than a year to go do. Um, that's just to get the cloud built and the data accessible. Then once you get into that, um, we also have accelerators for things like OSI. And we're building an accelerator right now for RGM. Um, those type of things then can be put in, reduce the time value equation and prop something up um, at least within, you know, one business unit uh, within the matter of, you know, six months or so. Um, so it does take, I will say the journey takes a couple of years to get there, but there are ways to get there in a quick fashion. The last piece that I would say that also needs to be there is really firm support of the ELT. Um, because it's, it's a ELT? change, uh, the executive leadership team within that. Okay, I just want to make sure we're, everyone's understanding these uh, acronyms. Yeah, no, no worries. So, um, it also takes the buy-in of the executive leadership team because it's a step change. It's a step change for everybody because now you're going to have an access point that you go into, a tool that you're going to leverage on a daily basis. It's going to be a part of your working life. And so, you know, the adoption becomes key. The accessibility comes key. The accountability even comes key within that. And so those are things that you constantly have to be thinking of and when you have the executive ownership within it, really working with the folks and adopting it at them at their level, you'll see that same adoption within uh, the organization. And then when that starts to happen, that's where you start to create great action. And, you know, that's the other end of AI that's also become really interesting, which is you can create the most perfect tool in the world, but if you can't drive adoption, accessibility and accountability, you end up with just a tool that you paid a lot of money for, but you're not getting a lot of return out of. Yeah, I was reading somewhere that if if you go into AI, there is a risk that it becomes you know obsolete because things are changing so quickly. Um, I imagine having those accelerators and working with a firm that this is your this is your only business. You know, I I will imagine that the innovation is happening on your side as well. So when people are plugging into this uh, AI cloud, you know, they're getting the benefits of, you know, upgrades to the system when they, you know, are part of your system, your solution. Yeah, they get, so there, there's a couple parts they get. So everything we do, we actually build. So where I talked about those accelerators, they build us like 50, 40, 50% like that, you know, that's instantaneous. The remainder is the customization to that CPG's business that we want to putting in place. Um, so when we do that, we're able to create solutions that really look, feel just like the corporation that they're, they're being applied within. Um, we also are able to create personas that you're not going to log in and see stuff you shouldn't see and have to weed through seven different screens to get to where you want to be um, and data that's relevant for your job. You see that instantaneously when you go in. The other piece, the other piece that we've done is we've built, when I came in as Global Head of Strategy, one of the things that I wanted to do is build a strategy team across the globe. And I don't want to build a strategy team that's just comprised of folks that just know data. I want to build a team that's comprised of industry experts that can really leverage both modern trade, which would be more like the United States, and then developing markets like you would see more in like the Middle East, um, and bring that together so that we can solve real business problems and then really enhance that adoption piece. So as we've done this, we've hired folks in um, India with CPG experience with high um high influence within analytics and RGM. We've hired folks in Canada with brand marketing backgrounds. Uh, we're hiring more folks in North America today. Um, and we're going to build this strategy organization out across the globe so that our partners get access to that strategy uh, practice every single day they interact with us. 
Uh, it is not just something that they're going to have uh, get value from within the ideation stage. And then it kind of moves out from there. Our folks are engaged with our current customers, with our future customers through all steps of the process, because we're looking at what we built today, but we're also thinking about what we haven't done tomorrow and how we can co-create and do that for the future so that our partners stay one step ahead. Do you envision one day that a solution like this will expand to Fortune 1000 and, and lower? For sure. For sure. I, it'll, it, I think it already has in certain ways. Uh, you've, there are some, there are companies that sell out there to the Fortune 1000 and do it in a scale way. You may not get the full technical guru that you get on some of the bigger ones, but what you do get is a solid solution. Um, that can really help enact change in your organization um, and it be able and en enable you to actually scale over time. Uh, the biggest thing that you have to watch out for is, are you buying a product or are you buying a solution that can impact my business? A product is going to be something that really you can't customize as much. A solution is going to be something that becomes that adaptive, accessible and accountable tool within your organization that actually speaks the way that you speak and looks at the metrics that you want to look at and provides that really impactful business need that you want to obtain. Yeah. I like that you, you have the accelerator, but then at the same time you have that customization piece that hones in on exactly what that CPG needs. And as you said, on shelf availability, understanding pricing, uh, margin, uh, gross margin control, all those areas have to be, have to be looked at or your promotions are ineffective. You're not making your margins and you're missing your forecast because you can, you know, look at all the different uh, data. Uh, what do you call them? Uh, lakes. Um, data lakes. Yep. Yeah. You have all these data lakes that come in. And I would imagine, too, if you can see a trend where the supply chain is going to be drying up, you know, perhaps you decide, hey, this is a good time for us to, to go through a price increase. You know, it's, it's it, I, I don't know. I guess there's lots of different ways to use it. That's probably a little too granular. But those are the kind of options that you're given when you can see that far in advance. It is. It is. And, and that's where that network organization starts to come in because – when you start to identify supply chain issues, you start to then put your stuff on allocation, which then can flow back into your forecasting, which helps you really understand what stores do I actually need to have my products in versus which ones do I not. So you can really start to make business critical decisions instantaneously from information that maybe you didn't have sight into. That may have taken weeks to get to you. Um, because the biggest, I mean, think about the big change that's happened over the last couple of years as data has come up, right? I always tell my folks, I'm like, there's there's two ways of sales. There's old school sales, which is like the highly relationship driven sales, and then there's new school new school sales, which is very much fact focused. And what you tend to see is, you know, there was probably a transition about ten years ago where it was more heavily um, relationship driven, more old school, and now you're seeing a lot more new new school. Um, and that's because of the accessibility to data. But what's also happened within that is that you have to drive partnership with your customer. And driving partnership means that you don't say no. Saying no is dead. You have to be solution-oriented. But also time is of the essence because there's immediacy that's expected of, you know, the retailer. And there's immediacy that's expected within decision-making. And, and a lot of times in the normal world, the get to some decisions does take some time, including if you work in a complex organization. AI is going to enable that where you can actually make very quick decisions within a complex organization to get to solution-oriented approaches with your retailers, even if the answer is maybe no, but at least you're moving to the options that are available for you for the business and that you can still provide value in that partnership back to your customers. Yeah. And you have the data to show why it's a no. Correct. And why it's, it's just not going to make sense at this time. 
Correct. Well, I think we definitely will have to follow up with you again as this develops more and we can see some you know, great examples of, of companies that have, that have been using this and just the forward trends. It's, um, it's very intriguing. That's why I really wanted you here. I, I wanted you to kind of explain this next wave of, of change that's going to be happening in the CPG space. Um, but before we go, you, um, when you and I were kind of talking about what some of your superpowers were, we, we got into our talent discussion and you really seem to, to have a lot to, to say around that. And, you know, I'd, I'd love for you to, you know, give some advice to a, a hiring leader. Obviously when you were VP sales at Coke, you probably had a pretty good sized team. So, um, what, what would you offer up at this point in terms of talent assessment? Yeah, so what I would say is you have to be really smart about the way that you evaluate talent. I think you need to understand the team that you have today, understand the qualities that exist within your team, and also identify the qualities that you're missing within your team. And then how do you highlight and showcase that when you're going to interview? I took an approach where I really, I mean, I won't say I stopped looking at the resume. I looked at it and I wanted to understand the experience that that person had, but I actually looked through it to identify some of the traits that I thought they would bring to the table. And the reason why I did that was because I felt like you can't teach the traits. You can teach them how to go do the job. And so in many cases, I would make hires that were maybe outside of the box. They didn't come with what the stereotypical person you would go hire for Coca-Cola. But the reason why I did that was because I wanted somebody who thought differently and I wanted somebody who would think outside the box. Because if I was going to go for strong growth within our team, I needed people who were going to push the limits within that. And that's where that trait identification came in more. And then also understanding the value of what the team had and where the gaps were, because you're going to create disruption, but disruption is good. And I'd always tell the team, like, we are going to have friction at times, but we're going to have good friction. And the idea is let's have friction within the room or on the call. And when it's done, we make a decision and we move on. But we do it because one idea from one person that's a differentiated thought can be the catalyst to a large idea that really changes the way that we do our business today. And that was kind of the, the thread in which really looked at talent and how to go bring talent into the organization. I feel like when people hire, they instantly hone in on experience and the traits are what are needed to help people fit into the culture. And that's what you're really talking about is that you looked at the culture of your team and you could see where these traits were needed. And then you could use, I, I imagine you're using some kind of a behavioral interview model, something to suss out if they, if they have those traits, if they've used those traits, how they use those traits in certain situations. And I think that's where people, tend to struggle. I think they can hear an interview like this and say, yeah, let's identify the traits. But then, you know, practically speaking, and you're now faced in an interview, well, how do you do it? So can you t tell us how you identified these traits? What kind of questions? How, how did you suss it out? Yeah. So one way of doing it was obviously when they answered some of the stereotypical questions within the interview process is asking more of those characteristic questions of, hey, how did you get to this conclusion? What were the things that you did within your capability to go drive change? How did you inspire people to be different? Like those type of questions, even when you're going through the normal question process. One question I ask in every single interview, and I will tell you it's one of the ones that has force me, I could be in a great interview and the person can answer this completely wrong and I will not hire them. But I ask them is how do you handle failure? And I've had so many responses to it that it has really helped 
change the way that I look at the way people answer it. Because yeah, I was going to say, because it, it seems like that's the issue, right? Is, is understanding what you want to hear from the answer. So um, can you think back? I'm putting you on the spot. Can, can you yeah. think back to some of these? Uh, I, I would tell you I've had folks tell me failure. That's really a strong word to use. That immediately is a like they a didn't want to even admit that they had failed. Yeah. What what we what I love to hear and see is people open up and say, you know what? When I did this, I failed miserably. It actually got me to the point where I thought I was going to lose my job. And what I did after that was I. I identified what I did wrong. I did these things and I actually course corrected and I wound up growing the business afterwards. And that led me to my next person. I'm completely fine with that. Even the way that I would manage my folks, I would tell them failure is encouraged. I want you to fail. It accelerates the learning curve within your business. I'm never going to let my person fail on a million dollar mistake, like never going to let them do that. But I will let them fail on some of the small things. So they, and then we would sit down afterwards and we'd say, okay, what did you do really well? Tell me what you think you did wrong. Help me understand what we could do better in the future. And you'd see a significant change, their understanding of the business and everything else that would come into that and how that accelerated their careers in the future, because one, they understood what it was like to fail. They understood how to go pick themselves back up and they understood how they could go even coach others in the future because of what had been done. First attempt in learning. That's what fail is as an acronym. Well, you know, we started this podcast and you were telling me about a failure you had, and it kind of took me by surprise in, in a good way that you had opened up, but now it's come full circle. You literally see the value of being honest. This is what you did. This is what did wrong. Made the changes. And obviously we could say that's accelerated into your career of where you are and what you've done. But now for you to, to look at, a, a you know, a salesperson, whoever it is you're, you're trying to hire, and they have not looked at themselves. They've not honestly been at that point where they're mature enough to talk about it. They're probably just not a mature enough person to be on your team, you know, to, 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 to deal with the kind of spotlight you're going to put on them, right, when there is a failure. But your motive is nothing but a good one. Yeah. Well, like I tell you, I mean, you, you had to be smart about the folks that you would bring into the Coca-Cola system. Um, it's a complex system. It's a high profile company. You need people who are tough skinned, willing to go learn, willing to adapt and change and constantly be curious. And you tend to see that more in the entrepreneurial background. Um, and so when you can identify the right people and bring them in, and, but you could protect them enough that would enable them to grow, you then have firmly enhanced their career. Where a lot of people fall short, and this is what falls on the manager, is that if you're going to leverage the, you know, the management style of, I'm going to cultivate a, you know, a culture of allowing folks to fail to learn, you then as the manager have to be the javelin catcher. And you're exactly, no, exactly. And I have found myself in that situation where, you know, I came in, I was the entrepreneur. I had lots of ideas and there was no javelin catcher. And guess what? You know, you, 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 you head off in in a direction you think you should be going and something doesn't go right. You have no political cover, you know, and suddenly, you know, your job's in jeopardy. Yeah, it, it's it's painful, and that's what doesn't allow people to always accept failure. And it's the idea of creating a safe environment where they know that their boss has their back. And what that eventually leads to, I mean, honestly speaking, is you're inspiring a high-performing team in the end. Uh, because when you do stuff like that, you're bringing your bottleneck up. Because let's face it, not all folks on your team are going to be created equal. 
there are folks that are at the top of the food chain that you can see one day being the future VPs and senior leadership within the company. And there's others that you're like, okay, maybe you get a promotion or two, but that's probably about it. Um, but how do you bring those folks up that are more towards the bottom up and actually over deliver? And that's what creates that really high, high performing team within there. And when you inspire them, they'll run through a wall for you. And that's where you really start to enact change because the team wants to run together and they want to participate. They want to drive thought leadership and they all feel ownership of the business regardless of the role. And that's how you really create success within those team environments. Yeah. You really must feel like a successful leader at that point when everyone is operating in that mindset because it takes time. It definitely takes time to do that, particularly in a large organization. As you said, it's, you didn't say it was political, but any large organization is going to be political. And like you said, you have to have thick skin and the, the people I've interviewed in big companies, they've often commented, you know, they just try to avoid stepping on a rake. There, There are just so many landmines in a big company so for you to be able to create that in a big company like that, that is, that's really saying something. And um, I hope folks learned a lot from that. I, I did. I think that was a, a great, a great way to finish up. And you mentioned quite a bit about um, hiring and the types of people you're looking for. Are, are there any positions right now you'd like to kind of just put a shout out for that? Uh, maybe someone's listening and they'd like to send a resume to you. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so, for trade-ins, we are growing extremely fast. Uh, when I started with the company about five and a half months ago, we were 700 employees. We're now over 1,100, and we are hiring um, our plans to hire another thousand by the end of this year. Those are majority data engineering, data scientist folks. Um, but I am also hiring a strategy leader for North America that is focused on digital marketing. And so I'm looking to bring that expertise in-house uh, to our organization. And I'm also going to be hiring more strategy folks uh, within North America and abroad over really the next um, 12 months. So I highly encourage you, if you're looking to expand your career, maybe go into uncharted territories of where the puck is going and learn, develop, and enhance your career please reach out more than happy to entertain, have a conversation and see where things go. Thank you, Jason. That's great. What's the best way for people to connect with you just on LinkedIn? Any, any um, other way? On LinkedIn is the best way to connect with me. Um, and then also if you like, I'll give my work email address out, which is Jason J A S O N dot Villano Vizan Victor I L L A N O at tradence, T-R-E-D-E-N-C-E dot com. Excellent. Excellent. Great course. Felt like we went through a lot of learning for AI and the disruption that's coming, how it can be used, and kind of looking forward to having a you know a follow-on one of these days just to to kind of see how this thing has come come full circle and you know, how it's really, really changing how CPGs go to market. Jason, thank you so much for being here today. Tony, thanks for having, having me. It's been a pleasure.